Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Dmitry Dadyumov. Dmitry is the CEO of Modern Treasury, a payment operations software company valued over $2 billion. Dmitry, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you for the invite me. I'm really excited. Now, Modern Treasury creates software for payment operations, essentially kind of helping manage money flows between different banks. And somewhat implicit in that business model is that the big banks are not going to be totally supplanted by the neobanks, the crypto, like all this other stuff. Do you think we're just going to have lots of different players? Some players have been around for a long time, some new players forever? I think so. Banking has been industry for hundreds of years. It's been many of the banks that we work with today have been have a long kind of a storied history. And I think financial services as an industry is something on the order of 17% of GDP. So I think there's a lot that's very stable and works well in that industry. And there's obviously a lot of opportunity for innovation, but I don't think that something is going to replace whole hog. And so that we're working very closely with many of the players in there. Some of them are neobanks. Some of them are very old school, if you will, but they're innovating themselves too. When you think of the big financial services companies, whether it be Wells Fargo or JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs, most of them are over a hundred years old. Given that it's such a big piece of the economy, that's not necessarily true in like healthcare or pick another place that's out there. Why do you think that is the case in the financial services industry? There's a couple of reasons. One is it's regulated. So I think there's returns to being around for a long time and having good track record and having good relationship with regulators and things like that. But the other piece of it is it's also financial services fundamentally as a product is one that requires a lot of trust on the part of the consumer or a corporate customer. Either way, you really want to work with somebody that you trust. And so I think that in that kind of environment, having a long track record becomes really important. And many other businesses... The reason why the leaders get supplanted is because someone has a way better product, which usually means there's some sort of technology innovation. Does it essentially mean financial services almost like anti-technology or something? I don't think that's quite fair to say. I mean, there are companies that are not 100 years old that have really become a part of our daily life. I mean, right, like Visa was founded in the 70s. Charles Schwab was founded in the 70s. Of course, there's more recent examples with Stripe and Square and companies like that. So it's not like there hasn't been massive successes in the financial services industry. But I do think that there are things that make it harder to innovate in. It's really about the psychology of the buyer oftentimes. When you're choosing who to invest with, the index fund revolution happened, but it took a long time for Vanguard to become the behemoth that they've become now. So there's accumulating advantage. And I think that's something that is, in a way, very exciting. But it also means that the incumbents and the people who have been doing this for a long time get to really benefit from that track record. Now, in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a ton of innovation in consumer payments, like mobile wallets, peer-to-peer payments, crypto. In the B2B payment world which is much larger in many ways, it feels like there's been quite a bit of less innovation there. First of all, is that right? And if so, why is that true? I think that's correct. One of the things that I always go back to is just thinking about the history of the internet and what are the things that people innovated on in the 90s when the internet first first showed up. And when you think about the early successes of the internet, companies like Amazon and Expedia and Netflix the fundamental commercial problem in those companies is having a form online that accepts credit cards. And to transact a 
type of transaction. Now, that's a very, very different problem than sending a wire to buy a house for $2 million. And so there wasn't as many companies innovating in that space, I think, early on in the history of the internet. And maybe it's behavior on the consumer side, maybe it's ambition from entrepreneurs, from VCs. But you've seen a lot more companies over the past decade start innovating in areas of the economy that are maybe a little bit heavier and slower to change. Things like payroll and real estate and health insurance. And all of a sudden, you're seeing companies doing that. And my two co-founders and I worked on this problem on a mortgage setting and sending a wire over the web from a website, from an API call that's coming from a website is a little bit of a crazy thing. I don't think people were innovating in that quite as much back in the 90s and early 2000s. And all of a sudden, in the past decade, people have done a lot more of that. So we're seeing a lot more innovation now in the B2B world, but it's not natural early adopter segment of the economy. If that happens, and if one can move money in a much more frictionless way in a B2B world, what does that open up? Why will that lead to a better world? There's a lot of different ways to answer that question. Let's just take two angles at it. One is a customer delight element, which is there's a lot of things in the B2B or B2C world where there's slowness for no reason. And so just one example that I really like to think about is why do you get paid once every two weeks? Why can't companies do daily payouts? And of course, there's companies that make an entire, there's an entire payday loan industry that's built around the idea of like, when is the payday? (laughs) And the payday is not every day or it's not every hour because it takes a long time for somebody to calculate all these things and figure out how much they owe you and the tax agency and then employment agency and your benefits and all that, and then calculate the statement and then send it over. And then it takes three days to clear or what have you. So I think that that's one element of it. Wouldn't you rather be paid every day after the day you've worked? Maybe that worked back in the day that way where somebody gave you cash at the end of the day. You got to pay taxes and all those other types of things. And you're right, there's a lot of complexity involved. I like to think about electronic payment methods should be as close to cash as possible, which is like, in the moment, you can give somebody cash and it's just there and it's like it's settled instantaneously. I hand you a $20 bill, it's in your hand, it's settled instantaneously. That's a high bar for, I think, most electronic payment types to, to clear. I think the other element of it is just more operational efficiency. So I think we've all probably had either in personal lives or in our work lives, very frustrating moments where you're going through this manual drudgery of like moving CSVs and exporting them from different systems and uploading somewhere else and trying to make sure they all match and recategorizing things. And that happens at a huge scale across corporate America and the world. And so I think letting those finance teams go do the things that they actually wanted to do, like nobody got into finance because they wanted to reconcile line items on an Excel sheet ad nauseum. I think people get into finance because they want to be a strategic partner to the business and try to build the business correctly and think about costs and pricing and things like that. And so I think having computers should be pretty good at that, and they're not today. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity around really just sort of productivity and efficiency in running a business and visibility, because I think the other piece that you lose with all that manual work is the ability to actually see transparently into what it is that's a snapshot of your business, and you lose that as well. There's a lot of competition in the financial industry. If I want to go higher, if I want to go put my money in a bank account, there's hundreds of options. If I want to hire an investment banker, there's hundreds of options. If I want to hire a wealth manager, there's hundreds of options. If I want to put my money in a hedge fund, there's thousands of options. 
it doesn't seem like lack of competition is a problem, or do you think it's still an issue? I don't think there's a lot of technology being brought into this market. Because it's like services. I'm hiring investment bankers, like hiring a lawyer or something. That's right. And I think that having started a company, I mean, one of the amusing experiences about starting Modern Treasury was we'd go and pitch angel investors or VC investors about what we're trying to do and how we're going to rethink how funds flow. And then you'd get this, they'd get excited and they'd get this PDF with wire instructions. And then somebody has to go put in the bank portal and you get a phone call to say, hey, did you actually receive that? And you're like, whoa, 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 like this literally is what we're trying to fix. This process right now is your diligence, if you will, (laughs) but it's not an elegant technical solution. Let's put it that way. (laughs) We've got this Fed now instant payment services, which is coming in on the next year, supposedly. And How do you expect these new networks to change the payment landscape? Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with FedNow. We're a big believer in both FedNow and RTP, real-time payments, which is- And that's live already. one that's live. That's live already, and we have customers using it. And again, in the right use cases, it's a very, it's the right answer, if you will. I think- One of the things that's been really interesting to see in other countries is that when these systems show up, so UPI in India and PIX in Brazil are the two case studies that people point to oftentimes, they're not subtle. Over a period of two or three years, all of a sudden they take over 40, 50, 60% of the payment volume of the country. And why is that? Is it just much easier and better and everything that does flow? Yeah, I think once everybody's connected, I mean, I think that's the real fundamental thing is like how you make it ubiquitous is the number one enabler for it. But once it is actually the case, then in the US today, there's a couple of different options that I can send money. I mean, the most common ones are ACH and credit card, and they each have a drawback. ACH is not instant, credit cards are expensive, and these real-time payment systems are neither of those things. (laughs) They're cheaper and they're more instant. And so you lose some of the reason for not using them once they're there. And so like, I think going back to my comment about cash early on, I think FedNow is going to be much closer to what cash is than any other payment type. And so that I think is what we're going to revert to. So it'll take time for it to become available across all banks in the US. There's 3,000 banks in the US. And so it takes a while to connect them all. And I'm sure that there's going to be other interface type issues that need to be fixed and, and solved. But I do think that when it actually happens, it is not subtle. And what do you think then over time happens to the lowly wire? Do you think it eventually goes away? Or what do you think happens to the wire? I think the wire still has a place for some very high dollar items. So when you're buying a house, buying a company, you probably wouldn't use FedNow, but you never know. At the end of the day, FedNow may be a better protocol. I wouldn't know enough about it yet to know that it's going to work for somebody who is moving money between different accounts. Certainly, there's Swift wires for international cross-border wires. So when Microsoft wants to buy Skype and they're in Luxembourg or something, there has to be a national wire that has to happen there when that happens. So I think there's probably a place for that. But yeah, I think that certainly I think FedNow is also going to compete with wires. The real benefit of wires is they're more or less instant or instant being defined as 15 minutes or so, and they're irreversible, but they're also kind of expensive and pretty manual. So there's definitely benefits. Yeah, they're expensive, they're manual. It's also very weird. You can only send a wire during the business 
hours of the East Coast time. It's like, okay, well, all of a sudden you're at 1.30 p.m. Pacific and you can't send the wire into the next day or something. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense. That's true. Do you think some of these things will affect on like the other end, the credit cards or other types of things? These fees that credit card companies, at least in the U.S., take are very, very high. Yeah, I think that for sure, that's much of the use cases in UPI in India. It started out being a peer-to-peer thing where consumers can pay other consumers, almost like an Venmo type use case. But then the definition of a small business and a consumer is a fairly great definition. So all of a sudden, people started paying for things using UPI and sort of cascaded into basically a way for consumers to pay businesses. And so that competes pretty head on, I believe, with credit cards. There are some that would say the slowness of the payment system is actually a feature and not a bug because it puts speed bumps on things and maybe makes it a little bit more difficult to do fraud. What's your argument for that? I think there's an element to that fraud is something that you have to think through in every payment system because there's going to be somebody who's trying to figure out how to use it to their advantage. I don't know that slowness is the right answer. I think there's software systems that you have to have in place for making sure things are checked. Maybe there's certain payments that stop. Like if you're paying a large amount twice, an exact same amount to the exact same person, is that a mistake? Is that actually, do you mean to do that? There's things like that that I think certainly make sense to build into the systems. And by the way, they're important for them to exist both on the bank side and inside the company on the engineering work that the company does. So I think fraud is important. I'm not sure that slowing things down is the answer to that. I mean, we don't, email works pretty well and there's a lot of spam and fraud and filters that need to go around it, but the answer is not sending things by mail. How do you think about compliance? Can you see a world where compliance is done in real time as opposed to like periodic reports? Yeah. In fact, we have a product kind of around that. So I think that when companies work with banks, banks ask them to do certain checks around sanction screening. KYC, things like that. So being able to do that as real time as it can be is really important. And then I think the other piece of it is not just being able to monitor transactions and monitor counterparties that you're adding in real time. It's also being able to do that on an ongoing basis for the kind of forever. Because again, going back to fraud, it's not the one-off time that is really dangerous, if you will. It's really the times when somebody figures out something that has worked and they come back and they do it again and again and again. And so you have to be able to overlay the transaction data and actually start understanding, watching for patterns. We're in a bit of a crypto winter, but almost everything you're talking about are things like people have said, oh, crypto can do this. Crypto, maybe they haven't done it yet, but crypto can do this, crypto can do that. Where do you believe in crypto in the future and where are you a bit more skeptical? Yeah, it's old Bitcoin solves this. I think there's a lot of good technology that has been brought in crypto. I think where it needs to go, though, is it has to work with these regulated financial institutions and be broadly available. And I think by and large, people, both consumers and businesses, don't really care about the exact method of settlement or the exact way in which the data is stored. At the end of the day, they, for most people, the blockchain is just a database. And so you can kind of nerd out about all the details about it. But I think where it really needs to go is 
be transparent, be broadly available, be cheap to use and easy to use, and then people will use it. So I guess I don't think of it very much as a technology nerd's dream, like what is the right answer? I think of it a little bit more from a consumer perspective. Anything can work as long as it's better than the alternative. And I think that there's a lot of places where crypto holds a lot of promise, but hasn't quite figured out ways to really compete. One of the key things of crypto is the blockchain. And in some ways, blockchain is designed to be slow because it has to have many, many computers compute and hold the same record of the same database. And you would think potentially a more centralized database, which might not be as secure, might be much, much, much faster. There's some trade-off that one may have to make, like speed versus innumerability that you can't change it. Yeah. Well, I think where you really see element of this play out is fundamentally, there's a batch-based process that happens behind a lot of banking systems. And that's why things don't work after certain hours. There's a mainframe somewhere that's doing an operation overnight. There's a giant chunk machine that's going in the background and then settles all the banks across them. And then sun rises and we're back to square one. We can go do our activities again. I think there's a big change from batch-based systems to real-time system streaming payments. And so you can almost think of it as the DVD to streaming kind of move in, at Netflix. What does that look like in the world of payments and the world of banking, where you're not freezing the world at 5 p.m. Eastern and then settling everybody and then restarting? You're actually doing things in real time. And of course, there's a lot of technology that's been built for that, for those types of use cases. And I think those are going to find applicability in the financial services world over time. Yeah, one of the things is so interesting is like if you buy a stock, let's say I buy a share in Microsoft or something, I don't often own that stock for many, many days. Even though I like could even sell it a few seconds later after I bought it. It's like it's, it's very, very odd to me that I could sell something I don't actually own, but that's the world that we live in. Yeah. Hopefully not too many times. Yeah. Now, what do you think is like, for someone who isn't steeped in payments, what do you find is the most interesting thing in payments that maybe like the rest of us wouldn't understand? I think one thing that has been one of my favorite parts of working in payments, and I don't know if this is quite answers your question about that it's specific to payments, but there's not a lot of areas of technology that apply in basically every business. Definitionally, every business has payments in it. And so if you're working in the field of payments, you jump around between different industries. And for a business school nerd like me, like I love the idea of like just being across different case studies and learning about different businesses, new or old. And I think that's something that I don't know that is to be expected. Like you think of payments as this very dry thing and there's certain settlement times and when does this get over here? And you kind of think about it from that perspective. And I think a lot of times people miss that it's actually the lifeblood of business. It's the lifeblood of how commerce happens. And so the day-to-day of working in that industry is different from maybe the perception of it, which is you think of it as a dry thing and then you get into it and you're like, oh, like we're spending a day with a health insurance company and then a crypto company and then a a fund custodian. And every one of them is different and you're really learning a lot about a lot of different businesses. So maybe it's a little bit of a roundabout way of answering your question, but I think the applicability of payments to every industry is a really interesting feature of working in that field. But what do you think is the most outdated piece of it? Well, I think the answer has to be paper checks, I think. (laughs) And they're still used. I still had to write one recently. They're still being used and they're used at scale. I think, I forget the number, but I think it's something like 47% of B2B payments happen over paper check. Now, you know, what's interesting is the reason why the power of paper checks that none of the electronic methods have kind of figured out quite yet is that if I want to send 
funds to Apple, the company, I can put a paper check in an envelope and send it to their address. And there's no other way to do that with any other payment method. Otherwise, I have to call them up and be like, what's your account number? I'm going to wire you funds. Or can you give me your ACH routing information? I can't do that without them knowing it, which is kind of funny because you'd think that getting paid it's good. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, just send me money. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. And some people do publish their wallet address and stuff, but I don't know if anyone ever actually pays them. Yeah. But like, just on the off chance that somebody might accidentally pay that, like, why would you do that? Right. <laughs> if anyone who's listening just wants to send me money, please go ahead. Yeah, exactly. But there's an address and you can mail a check to it. And that's that. So I think when you think about FedNow and RTP and all these in the crypto, whatever new payment rail you think about, that is a feature that paper checks have that nobody else has figured out how to do quite that way. Our audience are people who are interested in data as a service, DAS companies. What data sets do you wish existed in the payments world? I wish I had this information, but it just doesn't exist or I haven't been able to find it or exists only in this area and I can't get it. What do you wish someone started? Yeah, a lot of payment problems are data problems. And specifically, I would say reconciliation problems. We actually did the survey, we did this payment op survey, where we went to companies between 500 people and 2,000 people. And we asked finance leaders at those companies about their tech stack and how they run their business from a payment operations lens. And the average number of systems that these companies run across is 9.5, which means 9.5 things that somebody's logging in and out of and moving data between. And this can be bank portals, ERP systems, accounting systems. So there's like a middleware needed to bring it all together or something. That's right. And I think within the company, right, the other, the other element of it is the cross companies, because when you have a payment, I mean, by definition, it comes from one party to another. And there's some information like the invoice is the line items that this payment is for. And why are those things separate? Like there's so much reconciliation work that happens where you're basically unstapling and restapling the invoice from the line item that showed up in your bank statement. So let's go back to the funding company example. A wire comes in, like capital calls for funds is a good example of this, where a fund will go tell its 30 investors that we're going to go make investment, you guys send us money. And the next day you refresh the bank portal and there's a bunch of payments and they're like, don't say anything about what they are. You had two people who owe you 100K and you only got 100K. So you don't know which you're calling them and you're like, did you send it or you don't send it yet? That's the data problem, right? Like the data problem is, A, how do you connect the internal systems and move that data around? And the second is, how do you cross that between different companies? And there's industry-specific versions of this, like in the healthcare world, or there's EDI data and things like that, that will hold information about what the payment is for. But anybody who's gone through any kind of building cycle in the healthcare system knows that that's not smooth and it doesn't work very well. So there's definitely missing data about why did so-and-so pay me this and does this cover this line item or that line item? That's part of the frustration with the wires is like there's these very, very tiny fields where you can send information. And often if they have a very, very strict, very small character limit, it's not even like a tweet. It's like a very, very tiny it's like 16 character. characters or something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's like, what can you say in that? You have to write some sort of code or something. And and then it's like to say sometimes even like, well... You just being an investor, you have like these companies that have exits, which is great. But then there's usually a tail where they maybe send you money over a few years because the money's in escrow for various types of things. So you'll get the big amount from, but then like later on, you could get like $123 in your wire to your bank account just totally randomly. 
And often you have no idea. It doesn't, it's not like it says like, oh yeah, this is from Google. It's like some clearing company. And it's very, very hard to reconcile. Like, what is this? Why did I get $123? There, there might be a separate letter in the mail that tells you what that was. Yeah. yeah hopefully you got an email about it. It's really interesting. Speaking of the company, Modern Treasure, like you guys have grown incredibly fast. I think you were in YC, started like 2018. We're talking right now in 2022. And now you're $2 billion valuation just like four years later. What do you think the non-obvious factors or decisions that allow you to move that quickly? There's been a lot of fintech companies, obviously, that have been funded and have been growing and that have done very well themselves. Probably the most non-obvious thing that we did is we really focus on the software aspect only of it. And the way that most fintech companies monetize is some version of being in the flow of funds and charging some amount for the risk they're taking for the moving the, the actual funds. They're taking some bips on the fund movement or something like that. Right. Or they have an account that they're essentially holding the funds in and they're moving that around. And we said uh, from the get-go that really the fundamental problem here is a software problem. This is a software problem of how do you connect to banks? How do you make bank integrations work? How do you make the data and the compliance data and all the things like ledgering, all that stuff has nothing to do with which bank you want to work with and what account you want to hold in and or even what industry you're in. And so I think one of the things that contributed to our ability to scale pretty quickly is that we were able to work with companies in all industries and we were not captive to a specific risk profile or size of company or segment of the bank that we worked with. It really was the first clients were across healthcare and real estate and B2B invoicing and financial services and education. That never, I think, would have been the case if we hadn't stayed pure to the software side of it. Now, I know you've thought a lot about hiring and talent spotting. What are you looking for? Do you think that most people aren't? What do you think is underpriced? Not necessarily underpriced in terms of like dollars, but other people aren't valuing it. And so you're able to find these gems that maybe other people don't understand are gems. As you're building a company, and I know you've done this multiple times, you know this part well, I think building a company, you start out without a lot of muscles or a lot of traditions or a lot of ideas of how to do things. And you have to bring in, like the culture of the company really gets built around the people that are joining it early on. So the first like 20, 30, 50 team members are incredibly important because they each bring some strand to your culture that allows you to become the company that hopefully you want to be. But it's that instantiation of what you're building is going to be somewhat a result of the people that you're bringing in. So I think that one thing that I really value and think is really important is having somebody who comes in with a strong personal narrative of why they're going to go work on this problem or this company or a company at the stage, or it's not like they have to have you know, dreamed of ACA since they were three years old. Of course, most people do dream of ACA when they're three, right? Yeah. But if you happen to not be one of those people, <laughs> there's still hope for you. No, but it's, it's one of those things that I think there has to be a real story of why are you doing this? It can be an intellectual curiosity story, by the way. It doesn't have to be your past and your past experiences driving you into this. It can be that you just find it really interesting. But I think you can spot that pretty easily because it tends to make the conversation a lot more authentic. And again, it does not have to come from experience. But if it's an authentic interest in the area, then all of a sudden you watch people sort of enjoy what they're working on and be engaged with it and really flower. So I think that's really important. One of the things I admire about Modern Treasury is that we're really selling a mission-critical software, and that's not usually something you want to buy from a 
small new company that's out there. How are you able to bridge that gap so quickly? You found one of the most difficult parts about this company. I mean, I think nobody wants to buy critical things from an early stage startup. And so that was one of the problems early on. And we owe a huge debt of gratitude to a personal friend who was starting a company called Sun and Benefits. It was a healthcare insurance company. It was an early stage startup and they were our first clients and they really put us in business. And I think that as a founder, you get a lot of too much credit probably and early employees and early investors and everybody gets credit for like starting this thing. But actually it's the first customer that's the true founder of the business in a way. They're the ones who turn this castle in the air into a real business. So I think we're very grateful for like many of the early customers that really bet on us. But I think over time, as you scale that, you start thinking proactively about how do you surround a prospect that's coming to talk to you with proof that you can do this. And some of it has to do with engineering reliability. Some of it has to do with partnerships with banks and others that they trust. Having large balance sheet is an element of that for many CFOs and others who think about it from a perspective of, is this company going to be around, not just is this product actually good? So I think all those things could go into it. But I do think that it's the first customer. There's, there's always a leap of faith from somebody who trusts and especially in a mission critical product. Now, you're a prolific Twitterer. I follow you at Dadiomov, D-A-D-I-O-M-O-V, for those people who want to follow you. And one of the things you said recently is that you said all the recent changes on Twitter, that in some ways the humans are still more of an issue and more of a problem than the bots. What did you mean by that? I think it was kind of just a joke. I don't think that that was a particularly profound thing. But yeah, you see Dolly too, and you see all these AI technology is really advancing and we're not going to know what they say if Elon takes them off Twitter. I actually think there's something to say about the real problems on some of the social media like Twitter. Bots are obviously problems. Like There's a lot of spam and stuff like that. And, and that's really, really annoying. But a lot of the people who are treating each other badly are not bots. They're actually that's people. Right. And when I see some of people saying really hurtful or vulgar things or stuff like that. It's hard to say. It's hard to know when you look at the account, whether it's a human or a computer or not. But my guess is nine times out of 10, it's actually a real human. And it's not like an AI spewing machine or something. The meanest account on Twitter is probably not some AI copywriter. It's probably human. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now, a couple of personal questions. I know your first job was working as a ski instructor in high school. Do you think it's important or useful for people to have jobs in the the service industry early in their career? I think ski instructing has been the super fun first job to have. For me, just skiing is a big passion of mine. So anytime that you can spend time in the mountains is a good thing. I think tactically, one thing that you learn just a little bit about leadership is when you have seven or eight cold five-year-olds and you have to keep them happy, <laughs> that's as hard of a test as anything. I've had that in many birthday parties for my kids. Yeah. yeah. So you learn through every job and through every experience you have. I think for me, this was super fun. It was a good time to spend time in the mountains and the weekends when I was in high school. So I'm very glad I did it. I'm not sure that I would say everybody must go. How do you think about high school jobs? There are obviously people who maybe instead of doing a high school job, they are doing sports or they're doing internship or they're doing other types of things. How do you think about that real high school job, whether it's working at the local McDonald's or the typical high school job? 
it's a place of privilege to not need one, I guess, to start with. Sure. I think that any job, again, is going to teach you something. So I think the mere facts of working and showing up on time and being somewhere is like really important. And I think that as you're growing up, that's a good lesson to learn that somebody's relying on you to represent the business and whatever it might be that you're working at. But at the same time, there's a lot of things you could be doing that are very additive to kind of future learnings. I don't have a strong view on one or another, but I definitely am glad that I worked a little bit in high school. Yeah, I think my first job when I was 14 is working at a TCBY, making ice cream and taking money and doing the cash register and having to show up on time. Yeah, a lot of reconciliation problems there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And opening (laughs) up the store and cleaning the machines and cleaning up late at night. No one thing was super hard to do, but in aggregate, at least for a 14 year old is like incredibly hard to do. And it just teaches you a lot of things. Like teamwork, you had to rely on other people that when they, the day they didn't show up and you had to do twice the work. Exactly. You remember that? (laughs) Absolutely. Now, you said your favorite book in 2021 was a book called The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson, which covers uh, Churchill's leadership in the Blitz. Churchill just does seem to inspire and use inspiration of mind, inspire so many people. Why do you think that time in World War II is so enduring? Yeah, The Splendid and the Vile is an amazing book because it really talks about day to day. I think it's like 100 days of the heart of the blitz. What was Churchill actually doing? And to answer your question, I think one of the things that is How really- How often was he just like drinking? Oh, every day. <laughs> he was going out to this country house and hosting guests. It wasn't obvious that there was a war going on. I, but you know, but, you know, but I think that the bigger point I think about Churchill and, and a lot of these, World War II is just one of these stories that for better or for worse, there's been so much written about in so many movies that it's almost like a short circuit to be able to tell a story because you can kind of jump in and everybody, there's probably like a billion people that can articulate something about London and the Blitz and Churchill and 1940 two or 1940, whatever that, that was. So I think that that's something that's really powerful. And I think we have those. We have those in technology. A lot of people know the story of Steve Jobs and the Macintosh and getting fired and coming back and the iPhone coming out, iPod and then iPhone coming out. You can almost talk about these things with the assumption that the audience knows a little bit of it versus if I started telling you something about year two of modern treasury, like I'd have to give you a lot of context about what's going on there. So I think that that's the thing that makes specifically, I think makes the Splendor in the Vial such a powerful book. Like I think it would be much harder to write that book about most war leaders because you'd have to explain this whole other thing of like, there's this other country in Europe and they're attacking, but they haven't invaded and like they're bombing. And you just kind of know that. You just go right into the meat of, and then he is also such a well-known person that you can actually get into the meat of it. You don't have to go to the background. You're predisposed to like be interested about him. (laughs) Well, he's an interesting historical figure. He had in some ways terrible parents who really hated him and chastised him and said these terrible things about him. And the letters that his parents wrote to him or win like worst parent of the year war for these letters that they wrote him. And then he's a young person, incredibly brave, decided to go to Cuba and do these crazy things. Then this is like incredibly brave, crazy stuff in South Africa, escaping from prison. And he's almost like a fairy tale or something. Doesn't really exist in real life. Part of the reason that so many people are so drawn to him. Okay, last question we ask all of our guests. What conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I'm going to think about that one. I think one topic that I tweet about and then I've got a lot of engagement on that I thought was kind of funny. I made the comment that I think when investors calculate TAM, that is an insult to your product team because calculating a total addressable market for whatever it is that you're trying to build is almost like presumption is that you're never going to invent anything else. And so therefore, in this pot in time when we can kind of figure out how big this can possibly get, 
And I think that there's a lot of companies out there that you can think about. Again, let's go back to a company like Apple. Whatever TAM you would have calculated for them in 1975 did not include AirPods or iPhone or iPod or computers, for that matter, <laughs> definition that we have of them. And so whatever TAM you would have calculated for Apple, you would have basically picked some number that was A, arbitrary, and B, didn't really capture the full creativity potential of the team that was already there and then obviously followed. So I think that you hear a lot of investors talk about really that focusing on the team is what matters and not being super analytical about it. And then, of course, you have the other school of thought where people build very sophisticated models. And I think that products can have some applicable segment. You can kind of go into that. It's very hard to say that that is going to be very predictive of how a company does. And all the great companies are they're B2C, they're B2B, they're all of the above, they're hardware, they're software. There's like a lot of things that the great companies end up doing. And so you just can't capture that in any sort of early analysis of the opportunity. And you think, yeah, if you're not growing at a high percentage rate anymore, or you start to see that growing, if you're smart enough, you should be able to move to an adjacent TAM. And so if you're selling X, there should be something somewhere adjacent on X that you can move into. You grow your product suite, especially if if you're in a secure position. So if you have high market share or if you have the leading product in your area, usually small TAMs are ones that you can potentially capture high market share in. That's why they're small. And maybe big TAMs are ones that you're never... But if you're in a small TAM and you capture high market share, you've got some sort of cover so that you can innovate quite a bit and usually it will be more profitable so you can innovate a bit. Maybe your CACs are probably really tiny. That's right. The other implication there is if you're considering investing in a team that you don't think is going to be able to make that jump, like that's clearly the wrong decision, right? <laughs> so not that you can predict like whether this market is going to be big or small or the CAC is going to be high or low, but if you don't think the team can figure out another thing to do, if that doesn't work, then you just answered the question you're trying to answer with it. <laughs> in the 70s and 80s, and even in the 90s, when venture capitalists were investing in companies, there was a presumption that they were likely going to replace the team. And so you think of Sequoia investing in Cisco, Sequoia investing in Atari. There was this presumption that we're going to get rid of this current team. They're going to get us only so far. And then we're going to bring in, and then at some point, let's say in the last 10 or 15 years, that's got flipped. It's almost like it's just too hard to go find somebody else who's going to make this thing better. The founders or the people who are currently out there, and obviously they'll upgrade themselves a little bit, but at least the founder, the founder can't take us to the next level, then probably we just shouldn't invest in the first place. That's a great point. I think maybe some of it has also came from the learning that The companies that replaced teams and lost some of that authenticity probably didn't do as well. So when you think about Microsoft, Bill Gates stayed there and and figured out DOS and Windows and Office and kept going versus somebody who captured the first opportunity. And then it's like, okay, now you've done all this work and finally you get a chance to start innovating and doing things a little bit more scale. And that's when you kind of replace somebody. So yeah, I think every case is different, but I do think that there is conventional wisdom around the size of opportunity and how you should think about it. And I just always think that it pales in comparison to the team and the speed of innovation and creativity that you can bring to a market. All right, Dimitri Dadiomov, thank you so much for being with us on World of DAS. This is a real pleasure. I'm a huge fan. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. 